0: Welcome to How To Date, a show about how to master the messy, complex, challenging and bizarre world of dating when you really didn't think you'd be back here again. I'm your host, Dr. Amantha Imba, And I'm your co-host, Monique Robin. So, Monique, it is good to be back for season two. Finally. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so we have literally been recording interviews for the last few months. But now we've finally had time to edit it all together and we will now be releasing one episode a week for season two for the next few weeks. And very excited for today's show because we've got a really interesting guest, Dr. Heath Schesinger who is the co-chair of the American Psychological Association's Committee on Consensual Non-Monogamy. How's that for a
1: title? Yeah, I think, yeah, it's, a, it's a mouthful, but I think it's a really valuable guest to have on the show because you and I have often discussed how many men that are back on the dating scene again have their status as ethically non-monogamous or polyamorous, and it's something we all have to navigate. So if you have
0: wondered or thought about maybe having some kind of open relationship. I think that people will find this chat with Heath really helpful. We talk about the different sorts of things that you might want to consider if you're thinking about trying some form of open relationship, how sexual health works when you're in a non-monogamous relationship, and also things like how do you navigate feelings of jealousy. So lots of stuff that we cover in our chat with Heath.
1: So Monique, how was your week in dating? Oh, Mantha, I actually went out on a date and I say that um, quite profoundly because as you know, we have discussed this, I found it hard to transition from the conversations I've been having with men into real life. There's
0: so much dating fatigue out there I'm finding.
1: Yeah, I think everybody's just so busy with their lives. It's just difficult, overwhelming for people. I don't know. That's what I'm telling myself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so let me tell you, for for the sake of anonymity, I'm going to call this guy very elite athlete. Very elite athlete. Okay. So I decide to meet this guy at a bar that I always go to, as you know, next door where I work. Now, of course, that addresses uh, dating rule number one, and that is don't go on a blind date to a venue where you know the staff really well. Hang on, you should do that or you shouldn't do that? No, you should not do that because for a start, you've got the whole wait staff knowing your situation. We talk, they're all on this dating journey with me. So I walk in with a guy that they don't recognize, So clearly not a friend or a colleague, I walk in, they're all like straight away going, Oh, Monique's on a date. So I'm already not in the best mindset, right? Yeah. And of course, if this date is a wanker, these wait stuff, it's the most exciting thing that's happened to them all week. They just love the tension. So of course, if you are gonna bring a date to a venue where you know all the stuff. It's got to be a, a date that you're pretty much guaranteed is going to be a good one. Okay, that's fair. But look, at that, there is safety though. Like at least you're not going to
0: get into any trouble.
1: Well, actually, it's funny you say that. I would have thought you're right. So I said to the waiter, I'm meeting my blind date because, yeah, I was nervous because it hit me that they all knew that he'd be a blind date. So I kind of felt like the need to forewarn them. And I said, if it looks like it's going bad please make sure you save me, tell me there was a phone call from my daughter or something, and and to which the waiter automatically sunk me and said, we're in 2020, your daughter would call you on the mobile. Anyway, he rocks up. For a start, he looked a lot older than his pictures. No judgement, but they definitely weren't new pictures. I later found out that's because he was a former very elite athlete and was still stuck in that stage of his life. So he probably was so stuck in it that he couldn't even produce an image from any era beyond that stage in his life. So did you know
0: he was former before accepting the date? I mean, not that there's a problem with that, but there's a problem with lying about that.
1: Well, interestingly, no, I didn't know he was anything. And I now when I analyse it, I realise because he couldn't even admit to being anything other than what he formerly was. So it was almost like his profile was nondescript, It's like he couldn't even quantify or qualify who he was now that he's not an elite athlete. So he didn't even mention in his profile that he used to be. But, boy, on the date, it was very, very (laughs) fundamental information. So, okay, it starts off like this. We get into the bar and... It was at the point where we're sort of reducing our COVID adherence and we're a little bit more relaxed, but there's still um, in many places COVID safe plans. At this particular bar, they they still have the scanning of the code to enter your details for COVID tracking. Okay, so I sit down. I'd already done my scanning because I arrived first. He rocks up looking much older than he did in his pictures, probably because he hasn't dared take a photo since he's no longer an elite athlete. And he had a big moustache, but not in the sense of like, you know, facial hair moustache, but a comical one almost. Like a Movember moustache. Well, that's the thing. So it was December (laughs) and I said to him, and it was probably really rude because I shouldn't comment on his aesthetics or physicality. He might like moustaches. So I said to him, but clearly I didn't, which is probably why I commented on it. I said to him, oh, you've got a very prominent moustache there? (laughs) To which he said, yeah, Movember. (laughs) But it's December. (laughs) And I said, yeah, it's December. He's like, oh, you know, I'll take it off one day. So clearly he's even stuck in the past with Movember. (laughs) So the scanning issue comes up because the waiter comes, who I know on first-name basis, and says, could you please scan your details for covid tracing purposes into this app. He says no, I will not. What? Yeah. But very defensively and for the life of me the waiter and I we make this conspiratorial gaze like oh god, this one's this one's a no go. <laughs> this is a deal breaker right here. <laughs> that was awkward. Yeah. And then we both look at him. So he responds to the waiter by saying hang on a second mate. I'm a former elite athlete. I know what it's like, everybody wanting to know your details, who you are, the media getting on your back. And you think for one moment me entering my details is because they're worried about COVID safety. They want to know who I am. They want to do it for marketing purposes. They want to be able to get inside the mind of a former elite athlete and the government just want to know what I'm doing now that I'm not playing professional sport. Oh, my God. So you're dealing with the conspiracy theorist <laughs> who's – Got a bit of an ego. <laughs> yeah, but honestly, to the point where it was such a fast stretch from what could have possibly been the truth. Like if he had said something like, oh, no, they use the government uses this for marketing information or whatever, I don't feel like I want to give those details. Is there an alternative? It would have been less defensive. But for some reason he had to bring in his status of being an elite athlete. And just this word elite what a, like, I don't know. Like, I'm not an elite athlete, so I can't say. But wouldn't you say, like, a professional sports person? or oh, So he described himself as an elite, insert sport here. Yeah. Ah. That's elite. Ah. I thought that was just your terminology. No, no, no. He described. Oh, no. I wouldn't have labelled him that. I'm not oh, that. <laughs> yeah. So he was an elite athlete. Now. What that did is, A, it put a really bad taste in my mouth because it demonstrated to me that he, yeah, it was a conspiracy theorist and he was completely paranoid, but what followed on is what did my head in. This guy used every opportunity he could to relay and to remind me that he was an elite athlete. Like what did he do? Okay, so, for example, and he brought up his ex very early on And in a way that was very derogatory, didn't try to keep that on the down low. And I had brought up my ex in a very diplomatic way when prompted, not proactively. He said, oh, my ex was a bitch, but, you know, as an elite athlete, I had my access to very superficial, stunning women. And Mm. I guess because I was an elite athlete, I was drawn in, young man, hormonal, and so many hot, sexy women. Failed to really look into the personality of them because they were just all so beautiful. And I was really enamoured by her. But in hindsight, there were so many beautiful women after me because I was an elite athlete that I probably could have got them both, personality and looks, but, you know. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> ha, To which I said to him in a passive aggressive condescending way to which he didn't take the tone I said oh you poor thing that's terrible I I feel really bad for you that you didn't have the opportunity to get an insight into your partner's personality before choosing them and he goes yeah it was really demanding being an elite athlete a lot of pressure a lot of Decisions were made on the fly because it was a very demanding job. And you know how we've discussed, Amantha, that this idea of dating etiquette and how it's unfair that chivalry requires the guys to pay often. So, because I like to make sure that I don't order up big, knowing that they may offer to pay on the first date, particularly if I do not plan to see them again. So, I ordered just a non alcoholic soda water right and i've got to be honest i'm like i'm not paying for this one he offers he can pay so he had to walk up to the till to pay anyway the the waiter the same waiter that already hated this guy says oh listen mate just tap here and he pauses we all pause the, the tension rose and he said i'm not tapping that what he's like the government are going to get my data If I tap, he's like, the government aren't linked to my FPOS machine, just the bank. (laughs) (laughs) You're pretty safe, mate. And then he goes, oh, no, but the government's linked to the bank, which is linked to your FPOS machine. And he's like, I'll insert. And so the waiter, who was quite a witty waiter, is like, oh, so the government's not linked via insertion (laughs) but is linked (laughs) via tapping. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, that's where they install the tracking device, oh. in the tapping. Oh. So anyway, as we're going down the stairs, by that stage my body language was so cold I was just couldn't conceal it anymore. And also I'm friends with this waiter. It's irritating. Uh-huh, it's embarrassing. Uh-huh. And... He said to me, he picked up on it, which is really good. He actually stepped outside his own very elite athlete ego and picked up on the fact that I did not like him, which was his only redeeming moment, actually. And he said to me, I'm sorry. He goes, you know, just as a former elite athlete, I always had to be on my toes. So I said to him, yeah, I just felt that that was a little bit over the top. And at the end of the day, if the government takes your data, actually, who cares? Like really, who cares? And it just was about to open up a whole can of worms and I then had to cut it short and said, really nice catching up with you, enjoy your life type thing. (laughs) (laughs) Did he get the picture? Did he message you afterwards? He did message me afterwards. He also was probably a little bit more aware of my bad signals and I'd given him credit for because he did apologize for how paranoid he was but of course apologized but didn't apologize because then qualified it by going I hope you understand that as a professional athlete elite athlete um Why I'm like the way I am, you probably don't understand because you haven't been in elite sport. (laughs) You're not elite, and I'm thinking to myself, well, you wouldn't bloody know because you didn't let me get away. Oh (laughs) no! So I just, you know, I had to actually call it with him. I don't think as a former elite athlete he could actually believe that I wasn't interested (laughs) in a second date. So I had to tell him very overtly. But, yeah, I think I learnt don't go to a venue where you want to endear yourself to the wait staff with a a first date. It's not a good idea. That's your main takeout out out of that whole experience. Yeah, pretty much. Well,
0: um, (laughs) how how about don't date people that refer to themselves as elite athletes? Well, that goes
1: without (laughs) saying, but it's not like I knew he was going to do that, right? (laughs) At least preemptively I could have gone to a nondescript anonymous venue my god um tell me how was your week please say it was better than mine
0: oh look it was better than yours but only because my the one date I went on during the week was not a disaster it was just it was just a meh you know like not not even worth reporting on for the sake of the podcast
1: yeah it's funny you say that and actually I'm gonna ask you this do you ever find because we do have so many crazily bad dates does the authenticity or the uh integrity of our stories ever get questioned by friends or people that know about our podcast because I find people say to me oh my god Monique is it really true do you could you have that many bad dates (laughs) do you ever get that uh
0: occasionally I do Although I do feel like you do have more disasters than me, but I feel like we're both more open to going on dates. I think the podcast makes me slightly more motivated to go on a date with someone that I'm like, yeah, I don't know, like if, you know, I probably if I wasn't doing this podcast and feeling the need to actually be reporting about my dating life. I would probably say no to this
1: date. It's actually so true. I can so relate to that. In fact, and this might answer why I have so many bad dates. I think what happens is I do the actual extremes of you. I don't lower my standards to the maybes. I do the either, yes, he's like the love of my life, I can feel it kind of guy, and I don't get many dates like that. Mm. So, and if I do, they're disappointing. But... I also go for the ones I've got to be honest, full disclosure here. And you know I do, because I've sent you photos of some funny ones. I go for the ones that scream podcast fodder. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so that was
0: our weekend dating. Our guest on today's show is Dr. Heath Sheshinger. And Heath is the co chair of the American Psychological Association's Committee on Consensual Non Monogamy and the co founder of the Polyamory Legal Advocacy Coalition. He's also a licensed behavioral health psychologist at the University of California, Berkeley. Let's head on over to Heath. I want to start with a question around how common open relationships are becoming, because I feel when I am looking through Bumble, I reckon maybe one in 20 profiles that I'm seeing are saying that they are into ethical non-monogamy or some variation of that. So why are these types of relationships becoming more common?
2: Yeah, well, first we can talk a little bit about the prevalence and your estimate looks like it's, it's, it's relatively accurate. So in the United States, we're starting to collect data on a larger scale and getting representative samples. And we know that approximately 5% of people in the United States identify as currently being in a consensually non-monogamous relationship. When it comes to people who have at some point in their life been in a consensually non-monogamous relationship, that's around one in five. My colleagues that often, and I oftentimes joke around about how that's as common as owning a cat. So what we're seeing <laughs> is that there are more and more people, even over the past uh, 10, to 15 years, are starting to do more searches on the topic and are just more curious about consensually non-monogamous relationships or open relationships. And I'm happy to define uh, those different terms if that would be uh, helpful as as well.
0: Yes, that that would be very helpful. So what are the main terms that we need to be aware of?
2: Yeah, and I would say that we're in the nascent stages of even determining what language to use. And even as we're uh, that, that consensual non-monogamy or polyamory are becoming more in the mainstream, one of the things that we still have to do is to, to come to consensus around what terms that we're going to use, similar to the LGBT movement, right? And finding different terms to capture a, a wide array of different experiences that people have. So for now, I would say that one term or terms that are gaining popularity as more umbrella terms to talk about all the different types of uh, consensual non-monogamy is consensual non-monogamy or ethical non-monogamy. And that's used as an umbrella term to capture all the different forms of mutually agreed upon non-monogamous relationships. That is a little bit distinct from polyamory, which is more a state or practice or even an orientation of having multiple sexual and romantic relationships simultaneously with everyone involved knowing. And and we use that as kind of a subset of consensual or or ethical non-monogamy to talk about people that are more open to falling in love with more than one person. That's a little bit distinct from open relationships and swinging which typically have more restrictions on romantic or emotional connections. So they're open to having connections with other people within swinging relationships. That's when it's a couple that predominantly goes to a place together and they more um, um, play with other people together. Versus open relationships, they are more open to having people date so your partner can date someone else, but there's more restrictions on, okay, m- you know, maybe no falling in love or limiting how much time we spend with that other person. So that's how they're a little bit different uh, from polyamory. Then there's other terms such as polygamy, which is having multiple wedded spouses. I think when people hear polyamory, they oftentimes think of uh, polygamy, which is uh, very different in terms of polygamy. The root of that is, is uh, by definition, having multiple wedded spouses.
1: So... For someone wanting to try some form of open or polyamorous relationship, what advice would you give them?
2: There are a number of things to consider, and and one off the bat is just to name that polyamory isn't for everyone and even that there are different types of ethical non-monogamy that are available. It's not this one-size-fits-all model. Right, that there's this whole spectrum in terms of the types of agreements that people can have in terms of allowing certain degrees of emotional intimacy, as well as different degrees of sexual intimacy and the type of agreements that people have. So, just naming that it's not for everyone, that people who are already have uh, good communication skills uh, tend to be lower in jealousy and, and have higher levels of trust tend to, uh, are more likely to be successful in these relationships, but it doesn't mean that someone that isn't naturally inclined that way isn't destined to learn that. Because polyamory, for many people, report that it has a way of cultivating those skills in them. Other things to consider is that there's been some recent research that has come out that indicates that the type of relationship agreements that people have don't matter in terms of predicting success or satisfaction in a relationship. So it doesn't matter if you have a monogamous relationship agreements or the nature of your consensually non-monogamous agreements, but what the most important factors are is their mutual consent. So are you really wanting to do that? And are you really comfortable with those uh, relationship agreements and communication? So I think of it as the three C's, consent, comfort, and communication are, are the keys to determining uh, whether or not a certain relationships, relationship agreements work for people.
0: And I guess for me, I tried an open relationship last year for a few months and I found it really challenging. And I want to know, does that just mean I'm just not suited to it or could it be more about other things that were at play?
2: Yeah, there certainly you know, are a number of factors to consider or that might be at play. It could be time in life. It could be the person that you were seeking to explore that with. There's so many different contextual factors. And a number of people indicate that even that, that non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy is a very fluid identity or something that really shifts based on their circumstances. So open couples or partners might close or become more monogamous when they've had a child or are moving, for example. So it can be something that's very flexible and evolves and is fluid over time. And so it's hard to say what might have we have to go into the details of what you might have been experiencing that might have generated or, or prompted it to be challenging. So I'm curious to hear uh, a bit of maybe what, what came up for you.
0: Yeah, I didn't want to be in an open relationship, but the person I was mm-hmm. seeing did. And so I thought, well, I will try to be open to this situation. It's not something I've tried before. But then I personally found that the jealousy was really was really hard to
2: manage. Right. And, and I think that that's a common theme that comes up as well and really touches on that piece of around consent. And, and really, I think a, a challenging question that people have to ask themselves a lot is, is this, this is really what I want to do? Is this model really a good fit for me? And that can be a really challenging question because discovering non-monogamy can be this life-changing event for people. It can be something that really opens them up really for a partner can be something that really helps them to, to feel alive, similar to people discovering that might be bisexual or queer. But it can be challenging when they're in the context of a partnership with someone who isn't consenting to that, who isn't saying, who, when they signed up to this agreement, didn't express that this was something that they wanted. It can be a really difficult challenge. And I work with a number of couples who are trying to navigate that. What do we do in those circumstances? Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yeah, I understand how um, it's a very evolved concept to want your partner to be really happy and on that basis not feel jealous when they find happiness with multiple partners. But is it likely or common that one in a polyamorous situation would be competitive or comparative and tend to want to be the favourite partner? Mm.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, I would say that that's, that's normal. I would even say jealousy is a, a also a, a normal human emotion. And one that I think that is, is important to meet with curiosity is something that we all experience. And I would say there's different types of relationship models that might be suited for someone that has different preferences for a relationship and i think regardless of the relationship that it's important that we maintain something to be that that, that is special about the relationship and even in pe- people who are in non hierarchical polyamorous relationships i think it's important to identify what is special about that relationship what is unique about that relationship and not everyone subscribes to a perfectly equitable non hierarchical polyamorous relationship. And so I would say for someone that is concerned about being replaced or that I work with a lot of people uh, trying to establish the right relationship agreements that are suited for who they are.
1: On a practical level, aside from the emotional complexity, how does sexual health work in a polyamorous setting? I know as a monogamous person, one of the rites of passage into further intimacy is to be able to have unprotected sex once you've built that trust, et cetera. How many people do I have to indirectly trust in order to reach that
2: level of intimacy? So, yeah, I'm glad that you brought this question up because it's a, it's a common question that comes up when people are opening their relationship and also is a common misconception about ethical non-monogamy. There's actually the research that we have on this so far that is exploring uh, the STI rates both current and previous with monogamous and consensually non-monogamous populations finds that they're functionally statistically uh, equitable. And the reason that is, is that even though people in consensual non-monogamous relationships, on average, have more sexual partners, they tend to engage in safer sex practices. They're talking about the other people that they're sleeping with. They're coming to agreements. It's really common that there's agreements that we have that you decide who you are or are not having using condoms with, for example. People are getting regular STI uh, uh, tests to uh, check their status and communicating that with their partners. And because of the frequency of infidelity with roughly 40% of marriages or long-term relationships experiencing at least one incident of infidelity, and oftentimes when people do cheat, they're not being as safe when doing so, that that functionally prompts monogamous and consensually non-monogamous populations to have statistically equitable Rates of current and past STIs. And so it's, it's I would say it's a myth, or it's um, certainly something that needs to be navigated and discussed. But it is a myth that you're uh, inherently increasing your risk by being in a contentionally non monogamous relationship, because people who are in ostensibly monogamous relationships are statistically just as likely, or just it seems like a similar risk of contracting an STI.
0: That's interesting when you compare it to infidelity statistics. And I guess has COVID changed the landscape or people's openness to be open in relationships, you know, because of health concerns.
2: That's a great question. And and I can only speak really from anecdotal Evidence around this, as there, I know colleagues and friends of mine are doing research on this topic, but we don't really have a strong sense at this point about what the impact is of COVID. But I know that there's been a number of forums and community uh, events within the polyamorous community that has really addressed the importance of taking COVID seriously. Um, and I know just anecdotally from a number of people that I'm in relationship with that. People are being more precautious and it's even led to a number of people having to make decisions to end relationships or push a pause on the type of polyamory that they were engaging with previously. So certainly it's just like anything else that we've seen that the COVID clearly has had a significant impact. But in terms of addressing the specifics, I, I can't really speak to the, the nuances there just yet.
0: I want to circle back to jealousy and just some advice for if you are in some kind of open relationship and you are feeling jealous, how can we deal with or manage those feelings?
2: I think it's, again, it's first so important to create a sense of safety in relationships when talking about jealousy. I often see and, and am a critic of you know, what I think of as idealized polyamory where there's this expectation that we shouldn't feel any jealousy or that there's something wrong uh, with my partner or me if I'm experiencing jealousy. And I think it's really important that we push back against those narratives and really create a sense of safety and acknowledging how normal and common it is to experience jealousy. i all experience it to various degrees. And I think it's important to... Um, I, I, I love this technique called rain where I really I try to work with people to uh, first recognize, allow, investigate, and nurture any of those experiences or any feelings that might be coming up within the context of a relationship, really conceptualizing how jealousy in and of itself is not the enemy, but something that is really promoting awareness of something that we are concerned about. And so just really trying to create a space to recognize what it is that's happening in your body or in your relationship allowing that experience to just be there just as it is recognizing it allowing it to be there and then investigating with curiosity and care and also trying to nurture that sense of what you experience with self compassion and working with your partner to explore that having regular check-ins both at the beginning or before you go on dates as well as after you have an experience or go on a date with somebody else. I think it's important to have those regular schedule check ins. Those are a couple things that I work with people on.
0: And through communicating your feelings and experiences about jealousy from your experience, do you find that that helps those feelings kind of dissipate?
2: Well, I think everyone is unique. This is these are these are one or two strategies that that I use with people. There's also a number of resources that are out there that are really helpful in terms of different books, uh, workbooks or resources. And yes, it certainly is, I would say jealousy is, or even one thing that's important to know about consensually non monogamous relationships is that people that are in them paradoxically tend to experience lower levels of jealousy. So in some ways, I think that that's in part Because it's almost like a form of exposure therapy, that people have an opportunity to remove or with when some of those protective features of a monogamous relationship are removed, for better or worse, it prompts people to have to then confront different insecurities that they have been experiencing. And what the research is showing so far, at least, is that people in non-monogamous relationships uh, tend to, with time, report lower levels of jealousy. Now, granted, we don't know yet if that's because people with lower levels of jealousy are being drawn to consensual non-monogamous relationships and or if it's something about being in a non-monogamous relationship that's facilitating that. I think it's a combination.
0: That's interesting, the idea of it being like exposure therapy.
2: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: I think another challenge that certainly I thought a bit about is the issue of time. And Monique and I are both mums. I've got my daughter half time. Monique's got her four kids almost all the time. And it's hard enough finding time to date one person, let alone several. So are people in open relationships, just better time managers or have they got <laughs> less going on in their lives? How does that practically work?
2: Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And certainly one of the, the significant challenges that people report being in consensual non-monogamous relationships is finding time to engage in consensual non-monogamy or finding a uh, uh, time to schedule now granted there's more people around that can help out and and offer uh, support but it is logistically can provide logistical challenges you know people often talk about how our capacity to love may be unlimited but our time energy and resources are not and so it certainly is just one of those things that that people Have to be intentional about. And it oftentimes will advise people to be mindful to bite off more than they can chew, right? It certainly is a common thing, especially for people that are new to this, that there's this tendency to maybe take on too many partners or to uh, kind of cast the net too wide. And then people end up feeling overwhelmed and then have to kind of cut back some of the commitments that they've, that they've done or engaged in.
1: You know what, Heath, I've just been thinking as you've been answering this question, you might have solved all my problems. As a mum of four children, I think I need five partners because what I could do is I could have four of them minding a child each because that's not too overwhelming, you know, babysitting because they're my partner while I go out um, with the fifth. Do you, it's actually very efficient for someone in my situation. I and, and then I don't appear to have the baggage of four children because I can just them amongst four men.
2: I think you're really touching on an important topic though. And even when I think of, you know, why are we seeing the rise of consensual non-monogamy that we're seeing? I see it as a response to that, the shift in our culture that we experienced toward nuclear families instead of having these families where there's multiple generations living in the same home. That we moved in the 1950s or so, we started moving toward this isolated nuclear family where there are only two people to care for a child or or to build a home. And now as we are progressing through that, I, I see this as being a rise of people finding alternative methods for getting their needs met by more than just their primary partner.
1: So when is it a good time to bring up that you are polyamorous before your first date, before you have sex, before they fall in love with you?
2: Yeah, I think that that's a really fair question. I think I tend to lean towards earlier is better. I'm not sure that there's a real clear, hard and fast rule on this. I think that it is important and our partners do have the right to know about this. I can certainly understand and empathize given the stigma around polyamory that people might be inclined to feel scared or concerned about disclosing this. But I think it's important to be authentic and to be clear about what you're interested in or curious about from the very beginning.
0: So how do you do that? How would one phrase that, like say on a first or second or third date?
2: Well, I would say to start, we're seeing an increasing number of dating apps that are starting to be inclusive of the consensual non-monogamous community. So it's making it much easier and much more normal for people to indicate that from the very beginning. And I would say, you know, early on, even just feeling it out or indicating asking about it and in, in asking someone about their preferences now as well as down the future. And you can get a sense for um, You know, I might say something in the effect of if I'm exploring, I might indicate that, yeah, I think it's important to be uh, committed to a relationship, but I can see myself over the life uh, of a relationship. Wow, that's being with only one person for my entire life. That might be something that I'm holding concern about. And so I can see myself potentially being open to a non-monogamous relationship or being clear about what your expectations are early on. I kind of lean toward Again, just being authentic, and even though it may be difficult, but at the end of the day, finding someone who is shares your values and shares your interests I think is one of the most important things, and if you really want to set yourself up for success and fulfillment over the course of a relationship, I think it's important that we make that step of being authentic.
0: From your experience, because I think something that kept me in the open relationship I was in is that I was hoping that eventually this person would just pick me, in inverted commas. And is that realistic if one finds themselves in an open relationship that they have decided they don't actually want to be open?
2: Yeah, and I think that that's a challenging spot that a number of people can find themselves in, is what do I do when I'm in an open relationship but I'm having reservations about whether this is a good fit for me. And there's a number of factors that might play into that, right? Of, of what is my relationship like with the other person? How might that have been for you if you got along well with uh, that the other person that your partner might have been dating? Or uh, were there certain things that you were needing in that relationship that they weren't able to provide for you? Uh, And what might that have looked like if they could? Is that something that they could provide? Or did they have a relationship orientation that was just a little bit different than yours? That they wanted a different type of non-monogamy that might have been well-suited for you, right? Because it could have been, one scenario is you were with a partner who wanted more of an open relationship, where maybe there was clear hierarchy and structure in terms of, the type of, of commitment and time uh, and energy that you all spent together. So I think it's important to get into the nuances of, of what people are wanting and trying to find the specific model that that works best for them with the individual or individuals that they are.
0: And for people that have listened to this interview and are thinking, hmm, I wouldn't mind reading more about ethical non-monogamy Or maybe trying it out what are some starting points to learn more and dig a bit deeper for people whether that be books or websites or groups or
2: anything Mm -hmm. well they can uh, go to my website it's just keithcheckinger.com and i have a resources tab that i've listed out a number of different resources of my favorite resources, Addressing Consensual Non-Monogamy, there's a, certainly, uh, I love the work of Esther Perel. I think that's a great place to start. Uh, Her book, Mating and Captivity, I think does a wonderful job capturing uh, how we all seem to have this inclination toward wanting security and wanting longevity in relationships. And we're also a species that is titillated by novelty. And how do we, regardless of the relationship agreements that we have, navigate and negotiate that mutual desire that that we seem to experience? Other favorites of mine are, there's a book by Tristan Terramino called Opening Up that really provides a helpful structure uh, for exploring the different relationship agreements that you can have. I'm also a fan of, uh, there's a book called Polysecure by a good friend and colleague that just came out named Jessica Fern and uh, links to all of those resources. In addition to a number of other resources you can find online on the website, there's also plenty of other uh, resources and websites out there that that do provide different lists of non-monogamous resources.
0: Fantastic. Hey, we will link to that in the show notes. Now, um, I must say I've, I've- found this conversation fascinating, Heath. Monique and I are so grateful that you'd spend some time with us talking about what I think is some really big and relevant things that I think a lot of our listeners are thinking about. So thank you so much for your time today.
1: Yeah, Heath, I appreciate it. I think for our listeners who are sort of back on the dating scene, it seems almost as though we're met with different parameters and different expectations of what constitutes a relationship, a lot of which are less traditional than they may be otherwise aware of. And I think this has been really informative for them. Thank you. Sure thing. And thank
2: you for having me.
1: So, Amantha, what did you think about that interview with Heath?
0: Uh, I thought that was really fascinating and it was really interesting listening to Heath given what I'd tried last year in terms of an open relationship. So I think for me, my big takeout is that if listeners are thinking about pursuing an open relationship or trying it out, I think it really needs to be mutual as opposed to one person really wanting it, like the guy I was dating and the other person, me, going along with it. I think that that is a recipe for failure.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. And I think because it is so common to see people or the men that I've met wanting that kind of relationship, it's very easy to acquiesce even if it's not something you really want. So I think people really have to take that reality check before agreeing to it. Yeah, it is very easy to acquiesce. So now I would just swipe left
0: if there is anything to do with consensual non-monogamy, because I know that that
1: is just not for me. Yeah. Not that it isn't for some people though. And I think that's great if you're open-minded in that regard. Absolutely. Yes that
0: is it for today's show. If you have enjoyed How to Date, why not share it with other people that you think could benefit from some of the advice that we are offering. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love to get your feedback. Please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listened to this show from. And we will see you next time. See
1: you soon.